0: Right, let's go ahead and get started this morning. And thank you for the flexibility of meeting in a new place. It'll just be for this week. And uh, then we'll be back in a regular place where we have a little more room to spread out to enjoy. It. Yeah. Just wait before the, before there the, I'll have papers for you. Yeah. No?
1: Well, can you just move your stand a little bit to the right, your, your
0: left? Yeah. And I'm not used to moving to the left in life. <laughs> All right. I'm all right. I'm all right, yes. <laughs>
2: That's
0: right. <laughs> all right, let's pray as we get started. Father, thank You for this opportunity to be together. And Father, we need the grace that only comes from You, and we thank You that it's abundant and lavish. And would You bestow it on us this morning as we study Your Word once again. And we're thankful for the opportunity to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into the book of Galatians, where we ended off last week was a question that had to do with wrong attitudes about giving. Remember that was a question that came up at the 11th hour? We're not going to spend a lot of time with it, and in fact, I don't have an additional handout for it. There's just some preliminary reflections that I have that we can talk about. We, we looked at what Paul has to say generously, willingly, sacrificially, uh, growingly. Um, but what would be some negative attitudes? What would be some attitudes to avoid, or what would be some reasons to avoid giving as we talk about the whole concept? One of them, if it were the first one, if it were to be followed, would put the prosperity gospel out of business, and that is we do not give to get. Now there's this this philosophy that um, we give to get, you know, and they and they misuse uh, philosophies that say, well, you know, you get a hundredfold and seed giving or seed giving. But Gloria Copeland goes so far as to say it's a guarantee. Mm -hmm. You give a dollar, the Lord will give you a hundred. You give a hundred dollars, the Lord will give you ten thousand. You know, it's just it's like that's not at all what God said, and if that's the reason why you are giving, then I would quote in the, let's say the uh, vernacular of what Peter says in Acts chapter 4, to hell with your money. (laughs) That's what he says when... One of the when Simon wanted to, it's not, it's not in the ESV. It just says, way, may, you par- "May your money perish with you." But the word there is cursed. May you be cursed uh, with your money. Um, we do not give. Not for. It's when he encounters Simon the magician who wants to uh, get paid money to give the Holy Spirit. If we are simply giving to get, that's not the right attitude. Okay. We already have received. We give because we have received. We give because the Lord has blessed us. We give because we want to uh, confess our need in Him. And so if He is pleased to bless our giving, that's up to Him. But we give because we have received. And so that's one attitude that we want to avoid. But it's very common. And I saw a prosperity preacher about uh, three months ago. Now, the video I saw three months ago. I don't know how long ago he preached it, but these guys have been preaching this stuff for a long time. He went so far as to say that uh, you might say, well, I should give to this little country church because there's a greater need. And he says, well, if you give to a little country church, you're going to get a little country church's blessing. But if you want the real blessing, give to my ministry. He's got this mega campus, multi-million dollar. Yeah. Yeah. So this is not at all honoring to the Lord, uh, give to get. I, I also think these are attitudes not to have, so wrong attitudes. And some of these you know already, but we're just completing a thought that we began with Paul. What are some good principles about giving? Um, the first one is we give to get. second one, give to show off. Yeah. We see that right in the Gospels. Yeah. Where people brag about what they've been giving and they want to be seen and they want to blast the trumpets and Jesus says don't do that. I saw this in Spain working on Muslims. And it has to do with their mentality of how they earn their salvation. They want to be seen doing good things. So they want to be seen praying. They want to be seen giving alms to the poor because they believe on the Day of Judgment there's a big balance that comes out and they want testimony of people coming and saying, I saw so and so giving to the poor. Okay, That's not why we give. We don't give to show off. Uh, In fact, Jesus went so far as to say don't even let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. And don't blast the trumpet. Don't draw attention to yourself. Which brings up an interesting case today. Because if you're like me, you itemize on your taxes. Okay? And so the, the the law allows us to do that. All of us can have the same benefits. We have to be careful that we're doing things for the right reason about why we give. Not, you know, um, to show off, as it were. Okay? Is there a question? I was just thinking, was that the heart in... Tax five, I think, with Ananias and Sapphira. a sort of matter of showing yeah. keeping up with the Joneses, Yeah. <laughs> right, and and they were caught, right? Yeah. So, yes, sir.
1: Yeah, as far as the tax deduction goes, um, the solution to that is: what am I going to do with that extra tax rebate? Yeah. Is that going to go to the work of the Lord? If that's uh, you know, I mean, if if it's, I'm getting it to put in my pocket, that's one thing. But if I'm getting it so that there is more that can go toward the work of the Lord, that takes away the the selfish incentive
0: yeah I, I, you're right for me it's just the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart and so what, what is the heart involved in all this and we're not doing anything inherently wrong if it is something that is available to everyone by virtue of living under the system that we live under um, but as long as our motivation is to please God not men right so um, there's a question no? okay <laughs> I see the engine turning <laughs> alright we well, had yeah, a no
2: fellow was standing at the back of the church with a $4,000 check that he was going to give to the building fund. He
0: showed it to everybody. In. Um, <laughs> um, yes. Well, that will not very far today. <laughs> yeah, he's, he earned his reward, didn't he? Well, I suppose what we should have done is said, no, we don't want it. Uh, Well, let's uh, not
1: get radical.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I would would add a third reason to this. A third attitude that we need to avoid about giving is this idea of giving to earn God's favor. Now, that's a subtle one that's a little bit related to the first one. But we see it in the book of uh, the book of Judges, where people are trying to do things to control God, to coerce God, to get God's favor. Oh, I'm going to do this in the hope that I kind of turn God's hand in my favor or give me something. It's another form of that. But it, it's you know God is pleased when we give. He's pleased with a cheerful giver, a joyful giver. He's pleased with a generous giver. He's pleased with a sacrificial giver. But isn't His pleasure enough? If you think about that. Is our satisfaction in Christ? Is that enough? Is Christ enough, or is it Christ plus what Christ gives? And if we're satisfied in what in Christ alone, then then whatever He gives or does not give, we find that we are completely satisfied because we're in Christ. Right. So that's that's more what I'm getting at. Is not how some trying to prove our love to God. Although He may call us to test Him, put to the test, you know, it says in Proverbs 3. Be a little more sacrificial than you've been, or be a little more growingly, as it were, than you've been. I, that's, you know, He's going to deal with His people. But we don't do it as a heavenly transaction. Yeah. We give, so we get something from God, we get His faith. We get His answer through prayer. We do. God is not a slot machine. God is a living being, a living God, who has a free will. In fact, He's the only one in all of the universe that has a truly free will, unhindered by anything except His own character. That's why He can't lie. That's why He can't you know, change His mind so we do not give to earn God's favor the fourth one that I came up with is we do not give at least I don't think that's a good motivation give out of guilt now this one could be challenged a little bit I think because sometimes we do need to be hit with the law so it will respond but the law is always to move us to grace judges is full of law right but then it needs to come back to grace. right? So, And grace ultimately is what changes lives. Grace transforms. Grace empowers. Uh, we are saved by grace alone, we say, but not by grace that is alone or by grace that leaves us alone. No, that grace changes us, transforms us. Paul says it teaches us. So I want to be careful on this one because maybe we need to give out of guilt because we are guilty of being a, a hoarder or being disobedient, or whatever. But I don't want the constant motivation in our lives to be one of guilt. Okay? The Lord may put His finger on something and say, you haven't been quite as faithful in this. In that case, respond to the prompting of God's Spirit, but then don't stay there. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's kind of like the flip side to number three. Uh, we're giving to in number 3 we're giving to earn God's favor i want to i want to turn in some extra credit here so god will give me extra extra grace but number 4 then is i'm afraid of god afraid of what he might do and so i want to buy him
0: off <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I i won't be happy with the little two seat table by the window i want the second row and so i just keep putting stuff in that in the Mm-hmm. And his hand, right? And I just yeah. think I can keep bribing God off, right? Yeah. Well, good luck with that one, right?
2: Yeah. <laughs> I, I've heard Christians say that you owe God ten percent, and anything above that is offerings, pretty well stuff. Think about that.
0: Well, you know, if you recall when I started on this, I thought I'm not going to talk in terms of percentage, as if it's a tax. Mm-hmm. I think as New Testament believers. We give out of grace. We give out of love. We get out of we give out of worship. Okay, so I I know that that's a common thought, but people that say that don't consistently use the law in their own life. They want to go back to the law when it's ten percent and it's the tithe, and then apply. But when it goes to other things, they're not quite as consistent in applying it. It's interesting that Jesus said very little about the tithe, other than saying when the when the Jewish leaders were. Tithing right down to they've got ten flakes of yeah. oregano. They make sure they give one flake. You know they're doing. He said, "You have ignored the major things of the law: righteousness and justice and mercy." Okay, this you should have done as well as these. And so, if that's a sense that he is affirming the validity of the tithe, but the tithe based on the fact that we owe God everything anyway. So. I don't know. And on one hand, I should say, yeah, give your 10% and then everything above it, you know, it's gravy, right? Except that it all belongs to God anyway. And so we don't want to play this game with God of how much of my money do I have to give to God? It might be better to think of how much of God's money is He allow me to keep? Because it's all His. And so... What do you need to, to live at the station of life that you're in so that you can have a witness to your community without hoarding, without putting, you know, building bigger barns, where you're putting all of your trust in your own strength and investments? Uh, and then, can you, are you willing to free it all up for God? So, that's not a satisfying statement to people that want a yes or no answer. Okay? Partly because, as I said at the beginning, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. That's where we have to go to. Yeah.
1: Can you just repeat what you just said about what you just said? I'm I'm, I'm sorry. It was sort of a string of...
0: Well, I have the recording. I can send you the recording. This is all from the hip a little bit. Um, Something about own strength. Yeah, we don't... We're not dependent, we don't want to say, look what I'm doing for God. The recognition that everything that we have comes from Him, including the strength to d- develop wealth, to gain wealth. Um, that was the warning He gave to the Israelites, do not say the strength of my hand has produced this wealth, but say, but the Lord has. Um, everything that we have comes from Him, so everything can go back to Him. I would say this, just love God and try to outgive
1: you can't
0: and if you do that it's going to be a fun adventure <laughs> that's what when I first started going to church I would get like maybe five or ten dollars yeah and my husband said you need to tithe you're going to find out that you're not going to miss it right and, well that's true and as well it's true and it seems like it multiplies yes because you're finding your satisfaction in him. I guess so. And that you really don't need as much as you thought you did. Yeah. But then also, his his economics don't work in a two-dimensional plane. Right. But they work really well in eternity. So, and the heart is very <laughs> easily deceived. And so this is why we just have to continue talking about it. I'm happy. Everyone in the church wants to start at 10% and grow from there believe me I'm happy when that happens because that shows that it's a generous heart that is giving to the Lord's work I'm just a little hesitant to hammer somebody with that and then they're just giving out of guilt and out of a sense of begrudging and out of a sense of obligation and Paul's saying God wants a joyful gift does that make sense? Mm -hmm. so we're dealing more with attitudes Um, I'm well aware that some absolutely teach to tithe I respect that, I'm not quite there but I understand why they do and to me, this is a secondary matter.
1: It can be used as a guide.
0: can be used as a guide. And then, sure.
1: Then what the heart?
0: It's kind of, kind of what Carol and I have done in our marriage. It's kind of the, the guide. It's like speaks
1: to you. Yeah.
0: It's really today. the, it's really the starting point, not the ending yeah, point. Yeah. That's for right. Us. Yeah. So, greed. The pastor has to be wary of greed. So Jane, uh, uh, Jim told me this joke. I'm going to try to tell it as good as he tells it. So you have two brothers. They're scalawags they're deceitful they're liars they're cheaters they're terrible in business and one of them dies and the surviving brother goes to the preacher and says pastor I'll give you ten thousand dollars if you perform the funeral and call my brother a saint So the pastor, he's, he's running a little church, and what is he going to do? Ten thousand dollars would go a long way, and what is he going to do? So he came up with a, a creative solution. Arrives the day of the funeral, he's given the message, and he says that this departed man was a jerk. He robbed people, he broke contracts, he stole. He was he was a wicked man to deal with. But compared to his brother here, he was a saint. <laughs> So get the <laughs> I think it's a parable, you know. <laughs> I'm not sure this is the end of the story. We'll have to ask Paul Harvey, but I don't know. It. But there's that idea of the heart, you know. Why do you, why do we do what we do? And the heart can be so easily deceived, and that's why we really need to watch over one another. So, any other thoughts about? We've been talking about good attitudes, biblical reasons to give. Now we've just looked at some brief attitudes not to have. Yes, sir. Well, I see the money going to a really
2: good cause. It supports the church. It supports missions. It supports spreading the gospel. And it's important for those people to have resources. Now... One more thing I want to say about that. I've been on several mission trips to Brazil, which are expensive. And people in the church that I left said, why don't you just give the money to the ministry that you're going down to visit instead of spending 4000 or $5,000 on plane fare and hotels and whatever. And, and the response was that the people who are down there engaged in the work Need the support and encouragement and visits from people here that tells them that you know we're on their side and we're at right. supporting them.
0: So, um, giving and money in God's economy is not a zero sum game. Do you understand when we say that? It's the idea that there's a pie, and you know you slice it up into so many different pieces according to different sizes, and there's only so much money to go around. So if this piece of pie is too big, if you make it smaller, there's more money to go. That's the idea behind that kind of thinking. It makes sense at a certain level. Just give them the money. But there's a couple of other principles that can help guide our thinking in that. And one of them has to do with the fact that God is not limited in the pie. God and His economy through the generosity of His people just keeps making a bigger pie. Okay? Makes more resources available. That's one. Two, for those that give, so let's say us, it still is true that where your heart is, there your treasure will also be. So, if we as a church send sons and daughters to the mission field, which is where our heart will be, the resourcing will follow. If we go and see certain places and partner with people in different places, our heart will be there. The money will go as well. Um, and, and, and thirdly then, God's not limited. So God can provide the $4,000 to send somebody on a three-week trip, but he also is, going to, is able to provide the whatever means that the local uh, pastor down there needs because that's how God promises to respond. So I get it. We don't want to promote biblical tourism and call it missionary work, okay? We want to promote actual ministry partnership, um, but we need to recognize that oftentimes that's part of what grows a bigger mission program in a church, is, is people in the church that are actually involved. So... I've seen both sides of that being in the foreign mission field for a number of years. Sometimes it's a little too much to have all these teams coming over Mm -hmm. because they take away from what I'm trying to do. But at the same time, if they don't come, they're probably not going to pray for us as much. They're not going to write as many emails or letters to us. And then eventually the, the giving will start to go down as well. So it's all about relationships, which I think is behind your question. The relationships are what's important. And everything in ministry, at least in God's economy, is tied to relationship. First our relationship with him. Okay? So those are good questions for every mission committee to wrestle with and every church to wrestle with, but it's not a one size fits all approach, even in that. Okay? And you get so much when you do go. Yes, yes. More it's actually you get more than what you get. What God does in you—I mean, that was my experience going on a short-term summer mission. It was like I'm not sure how much I actually did, but what I learned about the Lord, what I learned about the mission field, what I learned about the needs that are out there—that's what projected me into full-time ministry. So, yeah, you, you don't come back the same person. No,
1: no. Yeah, I liked I liked the concept of the tithe because it gives us a, a perspective. It gives us a range. Um, Am I is God expecting five dollars a week out of me, or is He expecting you know a a significant portion of my income? I think the tithe puts us in that mind, Uh, and as we are stewards of God's possessions, God's gift to us, uh, the whole of what we have, uh, then we can be open to him. Okay, what do you want me to do right. with the with what you've entrusted me? The Old Testament tithe was, did not all go to the temple. Uh, there were instructions, you should care for widows, care for orphans among you, the poor, with this tithe. Right. And I think we as Christians in our community <coughs> ought to recognize that uh, this, is, this is part of what God wants us to be aware of, how, how he wants us to serve him uh, before before our neighbors and our, our family members and, and people around us uh, who are looking to us to show them, to show them what does it mean to be a Christian? What does God look like? You know, here's what God looks like: uh, costly gifts for your need. Uh, and as we do that, I think we we are fulfilling God's purpose for our stuff.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a the whole idea of stewardship and resourcing is a multifaceted subject. Um, that goes beyond what a survey of the Bible can cover. Um, but it's good for us, when Paul addressed it as a major issue to a church, for us to look at it. But then fodder further, further conversation, perhaps, in other settings, where we talk about what does stewardship look like? What does money management look like? How do we handle our resources? How do we service the community? These kind of things. Um, that would be good for a conversation to continue with other groups and ministries in the church. So... Um, let's go ahead and, and move on from there. We're going to look at the book of Galatians today. At least we're going to start. I do have a few copies of the notes here. If I could get someone to help me hand them out. Because um, we're a little bit bulky in how we move around in the room today. Uh, but, uh, and, and I need to get my teaching notes out. But yeah, it's a good conversation and... and money money has a way of getting our attention all the time and Jesus talked about money perhaps more than any other subject certainly stewardship was a major part of his ministry it's good for us to listen to what he has to say so we're going to get to a brief summary on the, the epistle to the Galatians today and I want us to kind of imagine that we're in the steps of Paul. Paul has started this group of believers. He's taught them, he's discipled them, he's led them. Um, but he can't stay there. He is a, an apostle, he's a church planter, he's a missionary, and so he goes to a place, he preaches the gospel, gathers a group, moves on. Well... He finds himself with this group that hadn't been believers for very long, starting to run after false teachings. Enemies of the gospel that have infiltrated the group. And they actually oppose with Paul's teachings, say, Paul's not enough. Or Jesus is not enough. Yeah, Jesus is good, but you need to have Moses. Jesus is good, but you have to have circumcision. Jesus is good, but you have to add legalism around it. And Paul is wants to counteract that because he's planted this church among Gentiles and what is the responsibility of Gentiles to the gospel in relation to the, uh, how they interact with Jews Jewish believers so, and is it necessary then to be circumcised which is a symbol of being under the law and following the law so that's what we have in the book of Galatians um, of, Solomon says of the writing of many books there is no end And I think that's certainly true when it comes to the book of Galatians. Just a discussion about when it was written, to whom it was written. What were the situations involved? Did he write to this region of Asia Minor or to this region of Asia Minor? It just fills up volumes and volumes of books in a a discussion that I don't think is necessary for us to get into. I'll simply throw out some ideas for you, but we're going to move on actually to what the message of the book is because that ultimately is what we're looking at. But we start with the first question, the date. Now, for a lot of books, it's pretty easy. We have enough historical indicators in the text to know when it was written. We talked about Corinth, the Church uh, the letters to Corinth being written around 50-51 you know, uh, AD, about the book of Romans, when we, about 56-57. We have certain indicators in the text as far as what missionary journey he's on and what was going on in, the, in his region at that time. But with Galatians... There are those who say no. He went to the northern part of the Asia Minor, which is Turkey, and that means it would have been a le- it would, the book would have been written later. It would have been on a different missionary journey. There are those that say it was written on into the southern part of Asia Minor, and that it was on his first missionary journey. I go for the second. I think that it fits with the Book of Acts. I think that it fits with his first missionary journey that he was writing to those in what was the larger Galatian area, those that were in the southern part of Asia Minor on his first missionary journey. Um, I would not say this is an issue to, to divide fellowship over because men of good faith have taken different positions. Those that take that first position say, well, you look at Galatians, and it was written about, it's dealing with all the same stuff as Romans. So he must have written it at the same time he wrote Romans, which was about 56, 57 AD, on his third missionary journey. The response to that is, yeah, but it's not written in nearly the careful detail and elaborate discussion that Romans is written in. It's actually written seemingly in haste. Because he starts out by saying, I am astonished that you have already abandoned the gospel. So... There was an important event on how the early church was going to handle gentile believers coming into the church and how those gentile believers and Jewish believers were going to have fellowship. And that event took place in 50 AD. It was called the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15, is very strategic in understanding how the gospel is applied when different cultures encounter the kingdom of God and how they can live together. And in Acts chapter 15, in the Council of Jerusalem, under the the leadership of James, the half-brother of Jesus, at least in the human leadership, and of course under the leadership of God the Holy Spirit, the church decided that no, Gentiles do not have to become Jews once they come into the church. They don't have to be circumcised, they don't have to follow certain things of the law, there's just some basic things that they need to follow so the Jews and Gentiles can have fellowship. That took place in 50 AD. Now, this was the very subject that Paul is dealing with in the book of Galatians. And so, why I would say that he wrote to the southern part of Galatia, so it would be an earlier book, was it would have been very easy for him to say, didn't you hear what happened in Jerusalem? Now, I realize that that's arguing from a supposition. But so is the other side. <laughs> that's, that's what makes this, this argument so interesting is it, it, it goes with suppositions based on certain cues, okay? So I cut to the chase, I think he wrote it about 46 AD, 46 to 47 AD on his first missionary journey, actually towards the end of his first missionary journey where he has gathered through all these different cities and as he's coming back, he's already hearing of what's happening in this group of people that are called the Galatians, though it was composed of different cities. They say, already? Already you're banning the gospel? I was just there. I was just with you. And you're already turning against the gospel. So, as far, you know, in your your student notes, I give my reasons why I think the South Galatia theory fits the best. I think it just fits with what we know. Uh, Paul was one who traveled for major cities he traveled on the main roads we know where they are but there weren't major roads in northern Galatia until 290 or so AD well after the lifetime of Paul so he would have had to take small roads off roads. possible but we wouldn't know what they were and we wouldn't know where those cities were if they're not uh, how they would have fit in There's also just an absence of Paul ever being in northern Galatia, ever being in the northern, um, until much later in his ministry, being in that part. So, that's my best guess. There's no final exam on this. There's no test of fellowship. It just seems to fit with what we know about Paul as we see Paul. And then by the time about 12 years later, when he's writing the book of Romans you see maturity in his thinking, there's development in his thinking on justification by faith, you see more elaboration, you see more of a biblical theology, more comprehensive, seemingly more reasoned response uh, than we normally see Paul writing. So let's, let's look at the first part of Galatians, let's look at chapter 1. What the big argument that's going on in the book of Galatians is, who is Paul? We have to listen to Paul. Did Paul get his gospel from Christ or from someone else. Did we have other leaders that are coming. And Paul starts right out from the get-go in Galatians by saying, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. And God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with him. Okay? He starts out from the get-go, what I taught you, I received from God. What I taught you did not come through directly from men, although he admits in the book he met with uh, uh, some of the apostolic leaders in, in Jerusalem. But he's setting himself apart from these who have come with the law. And he's saying, I didn't come with the law. I came with a personal encounter that I had with Christ. And he talks about that later. He gives his testimony of what happened later in the chapter. So he goes down to chapter 1. We go down to the end. Um, Verse 12. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Now this is before his encounter with the Lord in Acts chapter 9. This is how he lived. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of the law. He's saying I I was a, a committed disciple of the law and of Judaism. But, verse 15... But when he, he now takes the attention off himself and puts it where it should be on God. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. This sounds just like out of the prophet Jeremiah. Like he's giving a prophetic utterance. He is mentioning to these Jewish leaders, think about, you guys know your scriptures. God set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. Paul knows it's not because of him. He didn't come to Christ because of anything in him. It was all of God. Called me by his grace. And this would be what we would call the effectual calling. That means it has effect. Okay, It actually saved him, this calling. Was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, because of my interest in where I was for 16 years, he went to Jordan. This Arabia includes a large section of what we know as Jordan today. So when I was teaching at the seminary there, I'd say, hey, you're following the good steps. Paul had you beat by about 2,000 years. And then he says, I went up and met the apostles. But then he says this. Um, uh, I saw none of the other uh, apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then he says in chapter 2, they added nothing to my message. Only they asked that I would remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So Paul's giving his testimony. He says, do you remember who I was? God radically saved me, then Christ sent me to you. I planted the gospel, the church among you, I led you, and then he comes in verse 6. I am so astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. So whenever he wrote it, whether it was in the mid-40s as I think, or it was in the mid-50s as some scholars think, something happened very quickly after he was there planting the church to where they're turning away. And he's, he's not happy with it. And He's saying not that there's another gospel, but you're just distorting the one that is there. So, again, I just think it was an earlier date. If that's the case, then this was the first letter that Paul wrote that we have in the New Testament. It would be second in the New Testament that was written after the book of James. I think James was the first book written by the half-brother of the Lord. And then we have Galatians. Um, That may not be correct. What we all would affirm is that both Galatians and James are under the apostolic authority of the Holy Spirit whenever he inspired them, okay? That's one thing we know for sure. But I take it that he wrote this at the end of his first missionary journey. His missionary journey was between 44 and 49 AD where he traveled over a number of different areas, which means it happened before this pivotal event. And I think that's what he wrote sometime during that period. I'm open for discussion on that. Honestly, it doesn't affect the message of the book itself. The message of the book is still cool. Yes, sir. I saw, I saw the engine turn.
2: That's well. You just said what I was thinking.
0: Yeah. You know, we can sit around and debate: is it the northern or is it the southern population? But in the end, does it amount? It doesn't to matter one way or the other. It does not. And good and godly men have written commentaries on both sides, which means then that we should have a a little academic humility maybe we just don't know on some things and it's okay what we know we know but certain things if we like nobody disputes an empty tomb on the outskirts of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago we can still go there that's more critical than this as Paul writes his letter though there's some brilliance to it because we can see that he it's basically a defense of who he is and he breaks it basically up into three sections he starts out Chapters 1 and 2 are his biographical argument. God gave me the gospel. So the gospel comes from God. That's different than what these men are bringing to Galatia. Secondly, the theological argument, get away from legalism. Follow the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is enough. The third argument, chapters 5 and 6, grace changes your life. So he starts up by saying where he got the message... He confronts the message that they're listening with the message that he receives. And then the last part of the book is living out that message in faithful gospel living among the believers of, of Galatia. Okay? That makes sense then as we read through it. We hear some of Paul's personality. But how many of us want to be in the other end of what Paul says, you foolish Galatians? Which he does say. We don't want to be the other end of that. Right, you fools! How can you so quickly abandon the truth that you have received? I hope that we haven't quickly abandoned the truth that we've received. I hope we're growing in the group, growth that we of the truth that we have received. And um, so, uh, there's an extended outline. I forgot to have a PowerPoint. I don't know if we can even can even see it. Let's do this. So, I don't know how well you can see the map. This is the area that we're talking about. Okay? This is more the southern part of Galatia where he went to these cities. The northern part is up here that didn't have the roads until a little later. But his first missionary trip brought him through those areas. Mm-hmm. Um He claims that it comes from Paul, from God, and therefore he stands firm in it. He's not going to give in to what these other guys are bringing. And then this is the discussion that we just had. Is it South Galatia? Is it North Galatia? In the end, he brought the gospel that came from God, and these guys are abandoning it too quickly. Okay? So, when I talk about the date of the writing, it's because I've already waved my flag, right? South Galatia theory, based on where he went, what are some of the reasons for it, okay? But we've already talked about that, so let's move on to... He wrote it to yeah, Antioch. He always returned in his missionary journeys going back to Antioch, where he'd go back to Antioch, give a missionary report, this is what has happened, To get ready, go out on a second trip, okay? But now the things that are clear. What are the main message of the book? We won't look this is it's a little bit disjointed. I mean he's just jumping from subject to subject to subject whereas if we look at the book of Romans it was much more elaborative moving from subject to subject to subject okay Oops. the clearest thing is he wants he wants them to understand that his ministry has come from God. Now Paul often has to defend his apostolic authority. Because all these churches are rebels. (laughs) They eventually want to rebel against his authority. They want to believe the new thing that comes along rather than the revealed thing that never changes. That's a constant threat in every generation. The gospel never changes. But the threats to the gospel change with each generation. And therefore each generation needs to be able to defend and define or define and defend the gospel and do it faithfully or we will lose the gospel and every generation is under threat of losing the gospel yeah is that what you meant when you talked about the heart being easily deceived among other reasons yeah we 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 want to see something and believe it or we want to see a miracle and we want to hear about power or we want to we get our emotions moved because of some really good orator but they're saying things that are not true so we need to be able to watch over our hearts guided by the truth so that we're not easily swayed back and forth by all these different things that can come and go so I saying, look my ministry is from God now did that mean he never consulted with the apostles no he clearly says in this book at least twice he consulted with the apostles he, he wasn't a renegade He was sent out as a missionary by a church in Antioch. He returned to that church and gave missionary reports. He recognized his collegial attitude and relationship with the other apostles. But where they were in error, he was willing to stand against him, and he does even in the book of of Galatians, where he stands against another apostle. So imagine then the courage, fortitude it took for him to... uh, In front of the Galatians, stand up to Peter and say, You're wrong. You are misleading people. And you need to get back to the gospel. Stop being a coward. Stand in the truth. They did that in the church of Galatia. They stood up against another apostle. Now, I have no doubt that they, after that, there was repentance and reconciliation and they continued to work together. We get signs. That they, they, this was not a breaking up of their relationship but it was a necessary rebuke in that relationship and that's always a challenge in leadership when do you rebuke when do you stand firm, when do you call out when do you just come quietly alongside and say here let me show you a better way but whenever it involves leadership and that leadership no, the teaching of that leadership has been public and is causing public impact needs to be called out publicly. And we're afraid to do that today. We're afraid to say, so and so is a false teacher. We're afraid to publicly call out. That's not right. It's not seen as loving. It's not seen as accepting. It's not seen as tolerant. I'm not sure. Actually, I'm pretty sure. That God is not going to be that tolerant at the judgment throne. The truth is going to be there. How do you do with the truth? Oh, you're in Christ. You're safe not in Christ no tolerance for untruth no tolerance for deviation from the truth <laughs> so this is my, the ministry that came from God and he's talking about the uniqueness of the gospel message now in one sense there's uniqueness about the gospel message and in another sense there's not it's unique and <laughs> that it refers to Jesus Christ who is now the fulfillment of the law fulfillment of the prophets the dispenser of ultimate truth but but friends listen salvation has always been by grace through faith and the promises of God Old Testament saints were not saved by what they did they were saved by grace and then they were to live out the law they were to show their redemption by living out the law that's what we're supposed to do today we show that we are saved by living according to the commands of God According to the holiness of God. But we're not saved by it. It just shows that we are saved, that we have saving faith. So, <clears throat> Paul says it's not, a, he goes to Peter in chapter 2, you're trying to force a legalistic system on these Gentile believers who have never lived under it. And you're saying, they have to, in a sense, Jesus is not enough, they've got to go back to Moses, but not even Moses properly taught. Their understanding and, I would say, misinterpretation of Moses. Because Moses and Jesus would not be in disagreement. and shouldn't be pitted against each other. And so it was a misinterpretation of what Moses was saying. Grace triumphs over the law. And the law is holy. The law is good. The law originates in God. And the law, as he says in chapter 3, is to lead us to Christ. The law is like a schoolmaster. You know, in olden days, the schoolmaster did what? He made sure you learned right? <laughs> a little bit tougher, tougher way. I'm not saying schoolmasters don't teach today, but the, the idea was the schoolmaster came along and made sure you wrote out your alphabet and wrote out your and and you learned this stuff and it led you to what you needed to know. The law is a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. Why? Because the more we try to keep the law, the more we understand how fallen we are, the more we don't keep the law, which means we're guilty before God, which means we need a solution to our guilt, which can only be in Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law. But once we're in Christ, then we can live out the moral law of God. And we are to live out the moral law of God. But it's because we're in Christ, we don't try to live out the moral law to gain Christ. Another important thing in Galatians is the importance of good leadership. How quickly the church in Galatia was misled even by an apostle. So we're told that some men came from James. Okay. Verse uh, chapter two verse uh, 12. For certain men came from James. Why would they use the word James? Because James was the leader in Jerusalem. Mother church. James was the half-brother of the Lord. Oh, they got the inside track. They claimed to be coming from James. okay? before these men came from James he was eating with the Gentiles but when they came he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. This is the party that wants to put them under the Mosaic law. And so even Peter not standing up for the truth unfortunately again withdraws. And now he just hangs out with his own people his own type. Oh those Gentiles they're They're unclean. I can't have table fellowship with them. Even though he knew the gospel said that he could. Okay? And that's why Paul has to rebuke him. Right? Yeah.
1: And even Barnabas, to whom Paul owed a great debt. And and a strong relationship.
0: On their first missionary journey. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So... Leadership. Good leadership is important because good leadership will always have an influence and so the question is what kind of influence will it have? So if Paul can say in chapter 1, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel, let him be accursed. He says that in chapter 1. He's not afraid to say in chapter 2, if either we or an apostle comes and preaches something other than what we've taught, stand against him. Paul's not a very 21st century man. And yet how do we live out the example of Paul and the truth of Paul in the way that Paul did? Well, of course, we have to be tied to Christ. What is the gospel? What is it that we're to stand firm on? And sometimes Christians think they're standing firm on things sometimes they're secondary and tertiary matters that are just preference and then sometimes they're not standing firm with the gospel that's why we need each other because <laughs> our hearts are so prone to deception so we need to really hold each other's feet to the fire of truth, the gospel the beautiful, precious gospel and that saves us but saves us what? So that we will perform good works. So that we will show the righteousness of God. So that we will grow in holiness. Okay? And so that God will get all the glory. God brings a new birth. He brought the new birth in Paul's life. There was a result of that birth. Somebody claims to be in Christ, but there's no fruit from the so called birth. Check the fruit. That's what it does. That's what Paul does in. Galatians, that's what he does in all of his books. Then Paul wants to show what is the understanding then. What is our relationship as Christians with Abraham? So, in other words, think of the cleverness that he does. The Judaizers wanted to go back to Moses, the law, circumcision. Paul says, I'll do you one better. I'm going to go all the way back to Abraham. Okay? Who came first? Abraham. To whom was the promise given that there would be a blessing to all the nations? Abraham. And so it's a, it's a stroke of genius in the book of Galatians where Paul says that Jesus is the ultimate seed of Abraham. And the one in whom Gentiles and Jews gather together as one family with one father through the one promise because we're the one people. So that's why in... Sunday School Vacation Bible School, we talk about Father Abraham. Right? Had many sons. <laughs> many sons had Father Abraham. That comes right out of the book of Galatians. But we don't say, Father Moses. We do like Moses. Moses leads us to Christ. Jesus is the greater Moses that came before fulfill the law. So it's brilliant how he does it in chapters 3 and 4 how He ties us together with Abraham and therefore we can rest as the children as the sons of Abraham in the promise that was given to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed through the seed of Abraham who is ultimately Christ. And that's why we can be excited about Christ to be Christocentric as we read the Bible from beginning to end because ultimately it's building in anticipation building in desire building in longing and then Christ comes. But even then, there's more because he has come and we're still in that now and not yet of the full consummation of the new heavens and the new earth that we long for. This is why we have communion that we proclaim not just his death. I mean, when Paul's talking about we proclaim his death, yes, we're proclaiming that, but all that it encompasses, which is a death that brings life brings to eternal life until he comes again. That he is the one who is provided and he's the one that's coming back. And we remember who he is. Okay? Any thoughts on that? Read Galatians 3 3 and 4 this week and just say, Lord, just show me what a blessing it is to be a child of Abraham. You know, if you have grandkids, sing the song with them. Right arm, left arm, whatever. Okay? Because it is a great blessing. But then Paul wants us to understand, so what goes on then?
1: You know, because the time that I'm born
0: again, I believe in Christ, I've got a new heart. But man, it's hard to live for God. That's a constant battle against sin, against my own selfishness, against these stupid ideas that flow through my mind and heart. And there's still things I want to do that aren't pleasing to God. Why? There's still things that I would prefer doing just because I want to. How do we live that out? This ongoing battle between the flesh, that human sinful nature to move against God's way, and the direction of the Spirit that is always moving us to follow in the ways of God and to glorify Christ. And if you say you don't feel that tension in your heart, there's one of two things. One, no, there's three. One, you're lying. Two, you're not in Christ. Or three, you're dead. Okay? Because the physically dead don't struggle with this anymore. But we who are in Christ do and will until we meet Christ face to face. And since we know that to be the case, then let's learn how to live in it. And so in very detailed fashion in in Galatians chapter 5, he talks about what does the flesh look like, the sinful deeds of the flesh. What does the fruit of the Spirit look like? And he says, walk in the Spirit so you will not fulfill the sinful desires of the flesh. Keep up with the Spirit. And that's something that, that we need to be doing from the moment that we're born again until the moment we're glorified. Well, dead because we're going to constantly fight in between those two worlds of who we were in Adam who we are in Christ and becoming in Christ and that struggle is ongoing and so Paul very courageously helps us understand what's involved with those and then the the last one which perhaps we need to take more time with next week if if we should meet next week uh, stay tuned Um, how to use our freedom in Christ responsibly because we are free now in Christ. we are free. But what does it mean to live freely? And Paul and Paul turns it to say we are free to serve others. Not ourselves, not our own flesh, we are free to serve others. Well as we come to the end of our time let me just give you a heads up. I, I'm waiting to get details. For a memorial service in central Virginia but we are already committed to being there, and so it's possible that that will happen later this week in which case we'll be gone for a short season um, so we'll just, you know, things will be communicated um, we pray for Pastor Brian as he comes back middle to later this next week interesting times <laughs> and God's still good and the gospel's still true And this is why we need to keep ourselves grounded in the Word. Because life comes at us. Sometimes in surprising ways. Father, as we leave now and we go out to face this week, thank You that You know what's going to happen. Because we sure don't. And thank You that even now You're preparing us. Father, help us to be prepared in Your Son. Grounded and rooted in Christ. So that come what may, we will find